Timothy. I want to encourage you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1, and we'll be looking there for the next several weeks. We finished our series last night on our vision statement and how to implement that through our strategic ways of connect, grow, serve, and reach. And um, we're going to be looking for the next several weeks at this, what's called a pastoral epistle. An epistle is not the wife of an apostle, it is a letter. And um, yeah, that was hysterical. Um, uh, First and second Timothy and Titus are called pastoral epistles because Paul wrote them to young men who had traveled with him. So there were upwards of 20 people who traveled with Paul over the years. And he was equipping them to do the work of ministry in a local uh, pastoral setting. And uh, 2 Timothy is one of those three books. And this is very probably Paul's last letter. Uh, it's assumed that it's the one right before he was executed for being a Christian. And so these are the last words of an aged uh, minister to a young man who is just starting in ministry. What would you say? Uh, When I got into ministry, the old guy told me, Robert, learn the difference between urgent and important. Urgent will drain your strength. Important will still matter in 10 years. That was a good line, wasn't it? I've tried to remember that over the years. But 2 Timothy is Paul's parting words of encouragement, challenge, and instruction for Timothy. Let's see what he has to say here in these first seven verses. We'll read it, and then we'll take them verse by verse. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. We're going to be looking at this verse by verse. I want to encourage you to keep something there, but turn also to Acts chapter 19. And we're going to see some of how he met Timothy, how Paul met Timothy. He had come to the towns of Derby and Lystra. And he talks about that in Acts chapter 16, and that's where he first met them. And then he moves down to uh, Ephesus in Acts chapter 18, met the people there and found there was was a group that included 12 men and decided that that was enough people to start a church with, um, led them to the Lord and started a church there in in Ephesus. And at the end of chapter 18, he says, you know, I can't stay with you long. I have to leave, but I'll return. He's doing the MacArthur thing. I will return if the Lord wills. And sometime later, God did will. And when he got there in Acts chapter 19, he found a group of people who were believers in Messiah, but they didn't have full understanding of what that meant. Now what it was, was a group of Jews who had made the pilgrimage from Ephesus down to Jerusalem for one or some of the feast. And as they traveled down the east side of the Jordan River, which was typical for them, they ran into the teachings of John the Baptist. And they were baptized by John, who taught Messiah is coming. And so I want to, uh, there's a baptism of repentance. Messiah is coming. They received that message. They were baptized under the baptism of John, according to Acts chapter 19, verse, first few verses there. And then they went to Jerusalem and then went home. Well, years later, when Paul comes to Ephesus, he finds these people and says, well, you're worshiping Jesus. They says, we don't know who Jesus is. Well, he's Jesus. We never heard of him. 
Well, what baptism did you receive? We received John's baptism. He told us that someone was coming, and Paul said, well, let me give you the rest of the story. I'm going to do the Paul Harvey right here. Here's the rest of the story. Jesus has appeared. He has lived. He's ministered. He died for our sins, buried, rose again the third day. He is the Messiah that John was talking about, who you keep looking for. He's already come. And now the Holy Spirit's come to give us power and our witness. And they said, well, we want to receive Jesus. So in Acts chapter 19, they received Jesus. And Paul was so encouraged by what happened there. Look in Acts 19 verse 8. It says, he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation... He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Boy, wouldn't it be great to be able to say all of, all of Salt Lake, all of Utah has heard the word of the Lord in the past two years. Wouldn't that be a great thing? And that's what happened here because God attended Paul's ministry with with the evidence of the truth of it. There were great miracles and just powerful things done to, in evidence to, uh, uh, of the truth of the word. And he spent two years there. It was a long time in the ministry of Paul. Didn't stay very many places that long. Finally, it was time to move on. He continued in that missionary journey. He's heading back to Jerusalem. And he sent them a letter. He said, I want to see you one more time. Spent that time with you. I want to see you one more time. And he sent, look in Acts chapter 20. Verse 17, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Come down here. I can't, don't have time to come up there, but come down here. There's an IHOP down here, an Israeli house of pancakes. Let's meet there. And the rest, the rest of Acts chapter 20 is Paul's farewell address. Uh, and it was during this address that he told them, you will probably never see me again. Look in Acts chapter 20, verse 36. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. There was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Paul got in the ship, went to Jerusalem. He's arrested. He's put on trial. He's awaiting trial, and he knows he's awaiting his execution. And that is very probably when he wrote this book to Timothy. He's lonely. It's understandable. He, he is by himself of the nearly 20 people he has had travel with him. There aren't many left. 2 Timothy 4.10, Demas has deserted me. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. 4.12, Tychicus, I've sent him to Ephesus. 4.20, Erastus, he's in Corinth. Trophimus is in Miletus. And all these people who have left, there aren't very many that have remained with me. For all these reasons, he says in 2 Timothy 4.9, do your best to come to me soon. 421, do your best to come before winter and bring John Mark with you, 2 Timothy 411, because he's very useful to me for ministry. And so these are Paul's last words to his beloved Timothy. Let's see what he says there in verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and Christ our Lord. God's the one who's called me to this ministry. I'm aware of that. It's for the purpose of spreading the message that Jesus Christ, there's salvation in him and no one else. And I'm addressing this to Timothy, my beloved child. It's a bit more intimate than to Timothy, my true child in the faith, which is how he addressed First Timothy. It might be that his impending death is weighing on him and he's wanting to express, as many people do when they're facing their final hours, their love for the ones that are around them. And Paul's a little bit more intimate. Look in verse 3. 
I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. We really don't know much about Paul's early life. We know, we, we know very little. We, we can assume he was raised in an Orthodox home because of his background. He, he was raised in the Jewish faith, the strictest adherence to it. But you know, by this time, I think it could be said about him what could be said about a lot of people in this room, that he found closer relationships with people in the church than he did with people that he was related to. And there are a lot of us that can relate to that one. Paul had found in the kingdom closer relationships than what he had in his blood relations. Because Psalm 68 is really true when it says God sets the lonely in families. Are you lonely? Friends, there's a family. It's called the family of God. And he wants, he wants to minister to you through that family. And Paul experienced that. It's interesting, we know that Paul had not always been loved or loving to the church. You know, He, he, he had a rocky start. Um, he was the guy when they, in Acts 7, we were about to stone Stephen, the first martyr of the church. He was the guy that everybody said, hey, would you watch my keys and cell phone while we go down here and kill this guy? Um, he's the guy up on the beach. Everybody goes swimming. They hand him their beach towels as if someone would want to steal your beach towel. And um, here you watch our beach towels. They handed their jackets to Paul. His name was Saul at the time and said, here, you keep an eye on these things. And that continued for some time that he was in agreement with persecution of the church, Acts 9-1. Paul still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He, he wasn't very popular, and yet this is the guy. This is the guy who in verse 3, having pursued the followers of Christ, having hated Jesus with a fanatical zeal, he's the one who says in verse 3, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience. How can somebody who's done the terrible things that this guy has done claim to have a clear conscience? How can somebody who's conducted themselves in such an offensive, brutal fashion ever claim? He's tormented. He's tormented people. He should be tormented the rest of his life. I don't want him to have a clear conscience. And yet, he says, I'm serving God with a clear conscience. How can he do that? You want to know why? It's one word. It's one word. Paul had experienced grace. Paul had experienced grace. Grace is not something you can earn, deserve, do well enough. Grace, by very definition, it cannot be reasonably explained or justified. It just exists. And you know, here's what's interesting about Christians and grace. There are a lot of Christians who look at grace and say, I don't understand it, so it must not be true. I don't understand it, so it must not work. It just, that just that wobbles my mind, you know. Because how many of you have no clue how an internal combustion engine works, but you're going to go sit in your vehicle today and put your key in there and crank it, and that engine's going to crank it, and you're going to drive a car all over town, you don't have a clue how that thing works. Why aren't you riding a bicycle, you know? Why aren't you walking? That you can understand, right? How many of us have, have no clue how electricity works, but when we go home today, we're flipping that switch. Not going to sit in the dark until we do understand, Right? Don't know how a microwave works, but that popcorn smells so good. <laughs> Don't know how that medicine works, but the doctor says, here, take this, and we say, okay, thank you. We have a thousand things in life we do not understand how it works, but we avail ourselves to them. We put our complete trust in them. But when it comes to grace, I don't understand it except it. How many of you, you come into a railroad crossing this, this afternoon, you don't know how your brakes work, but bless God, you're going to use them. 
I just don't believe, I don't believe brakes are for me. Well, something's going to slow you down. But when God comes to us in 1 John 1, 9 and says, listen, if you'll just confess, if you'll just say you did it, if you'll just confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us not only from our sins, but all the unrighteous nonsense that came in around it. That's how good He is. I'm not going to bother you with the unrighteous. I'll just take care of it for you. You've confessed your sins, done. And he says, I'll forgive you. Well, I don't understand that. And so we act like forgiveness is like Bill Cosby handing us a mixed drink or something. I don't know. I don't want any of that. And we'll argue, well, you don't know what I've done. And my response, that would be good. I'm glad. I might not like you as much. You wouldn't like me as much if you knew what I've done. But isn't it wonderful that what I think of you has absolutely no eternal bearing on the condition of your soul? And what you think of me has no eternal bearing on the condition of my soul. And yet, we continue to view God's estimation of us through the lens we place, through the lens other people have spoken over us, Rather than the simple declaration of truth that Jesus gave us in John 8, 36, it says, if the Son has set you free, you are free, baby. (laughs) But we're going to argue with it, but he can only do that after I've proven to him how worthy I am to be set free. And friends, that's not grace. Grace is a gift. It's a free gift of God to pay a debt he did not owe For people who would never understand, but who would be willing to just say, thanks. And Paul's conscience is clear, not because he was free of wrongdoing, but because he understood that his sin was paid for with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He understood what grace was, and he wasn't worried about what anybody else's judgment had to say. His conscience was clear. Now listen, just because your conscience is clear, 1, John, 1 Corinthians 4, I love this passage, 1 Corinthians 4, just because your conscience is clear, he said, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any other human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear. Now, if we stop right there, then that's our license. That's our ticket, right? No, Paul didn't stop there. My conscience is clear. That does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Friend, just because I don't, I don't have anything on my conscience right now doesn't mean there's not something that Jesus is going to point to tomorrow and say, you're ready to deal with that one? Yeah, let's do it. But as of right now, Paul is saying, my conscience is clear. I have received the gift of God's grace for forgiveness of my nonsense. And if God is the one who judged Paul... And if God is the one who judges us, then we can rest in that because we know him to be, as Paul described him in 2 Timothy 4.8, God the righteous judge. He's righteous. And we're going to continue to argue, but I know the terrible things that I've done and I just can't forgive myself. Friends, it must be a heavy burden having greater power to not forgive than the sacrifice of Jesus to forgive. That's a heavier burden than any of us can bear. 
Your forgiveness is the gift that God gives himself on you. Because listen to what he said in Isaiah 43. God said, I, I, he said it twice, I am he who blots out your transgressions. And then he tells us why. For my own sake, and I will not remember your sin. He gets something out of forgiving us. He gets a relationship with us because our sin is not allowed in his presence. But when he forgives our sin now, he can say, come on home. Let, come in and let's visit for a while. I will blot out your transgressions for my own sake. I will receive glory for this, not you. And when we receive his forgiveness, it is the greatest manifestation and expression of honor and worship that we can give him. Acts 3.19, repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. The Amplified Bible, the version for the hearing impaired says, repent, change your mind and purpose. Turn around and return to God. Why? That your sins may be erased, blotted out, and wiped out. How do we get them erased, blotted out, and wiped out? By turning around and returning to God. And no matter how much we argue, but I've done such terrible things, it's the persecutor of the church, the murderer of Christians, the hater of Jesus, who said, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience. Wow. Wow. And now the only question that remains is that song Ron Canoli put out several years ago. Whose report will you believe? You're going to believe, you, believe your report? You're going to believe everybody else's report about how you cannot be forgiven? Or are you going to believe God's report of, if I've set you free, you're free? Look there in verse 3. Again, I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. This was common with Paul. Uh, Philippians 1.3, I thank my God in all my remembrances of you. Just to have someone who cares. How, what a wonderful thing that is. Um, I went on a date this past week with one of my daughters-in-law, Natalie. She took me out for dinner and a movie. How was that? The movie was a documentary that she had uh, been made privy to through her work on, um, on kids who have been subjected to trauma. And it's an area of research in psychology and sociology these days, which is quite fascinating. But one of the things that they said in there was that the greatest single determining factor, the greatest, most important marker in turning the lives of these kids around, which they have all kinds of documentation, the numbers just scream at us. The number one factor in turning the lives of these kids around is, you want to guess what it was? One person who cared. One person who cared. It changed their lives. And Paul's looking at Timothy saying, I care. I care about you. I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. How many of you remember your grandma, your grandpa, your next door neighbor, the little old lady, Sunday school teacher, that person, whoever it was, who said, I'm praying for you. We have some of those folks in this church. I'm, I'm with you. Look there in verse 4. As I remember... Your tears. I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. It's probably talking about that parting that we've already talked about in Acts chapter 20. When there was much weeping on the part of all. Verse 5. I am reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois. And your mother Eunice. And now I am sure dwells in you as well. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1 if you would. I encourage you to turn there. Because we're going to talk about family for just a few minutes. We're going to talk about Timothy's in particular. Paul knew his grandmother Lois. That was my grandmother's name. He knew Timothy's mother Eunice. She was 
a Jewess who had become a Christian. Lois, the grandmother, was a Christian. The dad was a Greek. We know nothing about him other than that. He was probably not a Christian. But these two women, he tells him in uh, 2 Timothy 3, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred scriptures. These two women had trained, had raised Timothy in the faith. He had heard it from his earliest days. Paul met these folks when he went to those towns of Lystra and Derbe and established the church there. And their influence in Timothy had made it so that it was easy for him to understand and receive Jesus. He'd grown up in a Christian home. And Paul, when he met these people, said there's something about this young man that makes him willing to invest in Timothy. This, this one's he's worth investing in. But we have to ask ourselves the question, what about folks who have no godly heritage? What about first-generation Christians? What, what about them? I, I am convinced that I am a Christian today because in 1918, my great-grandmother got the flu. It was an epidemic sweeping the world. 60 million people died worldwide. Some of them in as little as four hours would be walking down the street, contract the flu, and in four hours be dead. When they, Everybody in our country and if virtually everybody worldwide was affected by that epidemic. And when my great-grandmother got the flu, my great-grandpa was not a Christian. Neither of them had, never, had ever served the Lord. They didn't know the Lord. They had two older sons that had already been to the war, the First World War, and When great-grandma got the flu, my grandmother said she was 12 years old. It was the first time she'd ever seen her daddy pray. Said he got on his knees and prayed, God, if you'll you'll heal my wife, I'll give you my life. Well, great-grandma was healed, and my great-grandpa got saved and served the Lord the rest of his life. My great-grandmother got saved. A year later, they sent their daughter, my grandmother, 12 years old, to a Bible camp, and my grandmother got saved. She... Went to seminary after graduating from college, met my grandpa. They had my mother, raised her in a Christian home, who raised me in a Christian home. And I'm convinced that now five generations we can count from my great-grandmother getting the flu. Five generations of people who are following God. And what a blessing it is to be that far down the line. How difficult is it when you're the first generation? We have a lot of first-generation Christians in this building. Do you realize what you have done for your posterity? Do you learn what you've done for your heritage? You have changed. You've given them opportunity to see God lived out in front of them. And what we have here, what we have here is Timothy, the result of generations. Look, look in that passage in first in, in Matthew chapter one. What happens when we don't necessarily have that? Matthew chapter one, verses seven and eight. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. Have you ever had a preacher read the wrong passage in a sermon and then try to make it fit? (laughs) How many of you read this passage this morning for your your devotions? You got up this morning and said, oh, bless God, I got to go read me some genealogies. Man, I'm just going to experience the Holy Ghost like I never have before. (laughs) But you know, in this checkered genealogy of Jesus, we find something that's really fascinating. I like what Thomas Fuller, he was a chaplain in Oliver Cromwell's England 400 years ago, had to say about this passage. He said, as we look at this, Rehoboam begat Abijah. That was a bad father who begat a bad son. 
Abijah begat Asaph, or Asa as another translation has it. That is, a bad father begat a good Asaph begat Jehoshaphat, that is a good father, begat a good son. And Jehoshaphat begat Joram, that is a good father, begat a bad son. Four generations shifts like that, in four generations. And then Fuller said, I see, Lord, from this, that my father's piety cannot be entailed to me. That is bad news for me. But I see also that actual impiety is not always hereditary. And that is good news for my son. I like that line. And friends, the piety of your parents does not assure your relationship with Jesus. And the impiety of your parents does not relegate you to the nether regions. In Jeremiah 31, he talks about this when he said, In those days they shall no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. It's not my fault. My dad, my dad ate sour grapes and I, my teeth are messed up because of it. The nipple collapsed when I was six months old, and I'm not to be blamed. No, there comes a time when we stand up and say, I did it. It's my fault. I chose to do it. I just choose to be an adult. Said there's coming a day when everyone shall die for his own sins. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. Your sins are yours to own. And Ezekiel talks about that same proverb in 18 when he says, As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. And friends, just because your parents have a relationship with Jesus doesn't mean you're a Christian any more than that they took you to Walmart means you get an inheritance from Sam himself. It was not until Jacob wrestled with Jesus himself, had his own hip knocked out of socket, that he was able to stand up and say, Now... God, He is my God. He's not just my daddy's God. He's not just my grandpa's God. Now, He is my God. And friends, He looks at each one of us as we argue with Him and we try and deflect the attention away from ourselves and we try and say, yeah, well, what about that person? And it's all their fault. And, and what are you going to do with them? He looks at us just like He looked at Peter that day on the beach. Peter's saying, yeah, but what about these guys? And Jesus said, what I do with them is none of your business. In John 21, you... You, follow me. And we try and blame it on our mom and daddy and say it's not my fault and it's society's fault and all these terrible things that have happened so that I have to have my teddy bear with me when I go to college. Knock yourself out, but at some point, you need to follow me. Quit blaming it on everybody else and just accept responsibility for the fact that I, I have sinned. I have come short of the glory. And while I might have predispositions toward it, that is not an excuse for sinful and unacceptable behavior. Jesus looks at us and says, I want you to follow me. And then verse 6. Look there in verse 6. For this reason, I remind you, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. Use a bellows and blow that thing alive. One commentator said, however rich the gifts which God has bestowed upon us, they do not grow of their own accord, but need to be cultivated by our own personal care. And friends, it is your responsibility to make sure the gifts that have been entrusted to you have been received by you with gratitude and submitted by you to the benefit of the rest of the world. So, well, I don't have any gifts. Well, then you just need to get saved. Because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12 that the, the Spirit has given gifts to everybody to profit the whole bunch of you. 
If you don't have gifts, it's because you had not gotten saved. You, you want to get saved before you leave here today. But friends, if you've accepted Jesus and the Holy Spirit is living inside of you, He has brought gifts with Him for you to submit back to the body. And it is not the responsibility of everybody else to make sure your gift is being used. It is yours. Paul said, I want you to fan this thing in the flame. And all of them recognized that Timothy had a gift. There was a whole group of them that laid hands on him. 1 Timothy 4 says, Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now, exactly how all that happened, we don't know, and it would be easy to get so wrapped up in things that we're never going to know that we miss the simple command. There's one thing that we can know. It is this. Elders recognized that this young man had a gift. They agreed to it and they commissioned him to use it. And now Paul is telling him, get to it. We don't know what the gift was. Second Timothy 4, it says, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And we can look at that and say, well, he must have been an evangelist. We don't know that. He could have been an evangelist, but that verse could just as easily mean, you're not an evangelist, I want you to use this as a discipline. Do the work of an evangelist as a daily discipline. Teach yourself how to do that. And friends, it could apply to a lot of us in this room who somebody comes up to you and says, I want you to do the work of a greeter. No amens on that. And we say, well, I'm just, just, I'm just not gifted to do that. Well, neither am I. But friends, somebody's got to greet those people. Somebody needs to let them know that somebody cares. That's not my natural gifting. I had to, through discipline, learn how to greet people and let them know somebody really does care. And you know what's fascinating to me? How many people genuinely care, genuinely love other people, but there's a disconnect between the love they have and meeting somebody. They really do care, but they've never learned how to just meet someone. Paul could be just as easily saying that to Timothy. Do the work of an evangelist. I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to be an evangelist. Well, go do the work and learn. And that's what he'd have to tell me. I have a buddy. I have a buddy named Tommy Kelly. He is an evangelist. That guy can sneeze and people are going to fall under the power. You know, so, oh, what do I have to do to be saved? Just irks me to no end. <laughs> we were in a Burger King years ago. And walk in there and there's this little girl in there sweeping and he asked her one stupid question. Do you, do you guys have slot machines in here? She said, no, we don't. But there's some across, oh, I don't want none, I don't want none. He said, I'm a Christian and I want to eat someplace that doesn't have slot machines. Whether you're in agreement with that, I don't care. I'm just telling you what happened. And she said, Christian, is that kind of like a Jehovah's Witness or something? And in five minutes... Tommy Kelly had her praying, repenting of her sins, praying to receive Jesus as her Savior. And I'm sitting there going, I could have talked to her for a year, and she's still, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. So, Tommy Kelly's an evangelist. That means I don't have to evangelize. I don't have to witness. I don't have to share my faith, right? No. Now, I hadn't gone to Burger King for 30 years, but it does not absolve me from the responsibility of Being a witness. And whether it's my native gifting, whether it's the first gift that the Holy Spirit gives to me when He fills me, when He comes into my life or not, is irrelevant. Friends, somebody has to do it. And I'm the one who's there. God, use me. 
He looks at him in verse 7 in relation to that gift that's in you. He says to him in verse 7, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Friends, fear is a terrible thing, isn't it? It's a terrible thing. It's the first thing that hit us in the garden when our parents, first parents, Adam and Eve, ate that fruit. It's the first thing that hit them. Jesus came looking for him in the garden that night and said, Whoa, where are you? And Adam said, Oh, I was, I was afraid because I was ashamed. So I hid myself. And we do the same thing. We're afraid to come into God's presence because of the shame of our sin. So we go running. We'll go try and hide ourselves in the shadows. When, when he says, won't you come into my presence, we're, we're afraid to come into his presence because we carry the shame of sin that we have not received his forgiveness for. And so we run and hide. Fear is a terrible thing. It broke that relationship. And Jesus did for them a shadow of what he did for us on Calvary when in Genesis 3.21 it says, The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Where did he get those skins? He didn't go to Tandy Leather. Friends, there was a sacrifice made that day. Just like on Calvary, there was a sacrifice to deal with to cover your sins. And Adam and Eve could have very easily said, no, fig leaves have got it. And fig leaves are going to shrivel up like a frightened turtle. (laughs) But Jesus made a sacrifice that was adequate. It was completely adequate to the task to cover our shame and to make it so that now we don't have to be afraid. You know who the first ones hit the lake of fire are? First ones to hit the lake of fire in Revelation 21. Oh, it's the people who don't believe. No, it's not. Oh, well, it's got to be murderers. No. Liars? No. Adulterers? No. Bank robbers? No. That person in my family I can't stand? Eh. No. You know the first ones hit the lake of fire in Revelation 21.8? The fearful and the unbelieving. And then the list. First ones to hit it. It's the same word. It's built off the same word that our passage in 2 Timothy is built off of. That fear. And friends, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Fear is what makes us hide. Fear is what makes us go run to the shadows. But Hebrews 10, 39 says, We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We're not going to shrink back. We have no fear. Because according to Hebrews 6.14, what God has done in us has made us bold so that we can boldly come to the throne of grace, so that we can obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. That's where we receive it. We come into His presence without fear because we recognize now He has forgiven me. And He has invited me into His presence. Friends, that's grace. Wow, I receive that. And then, as a result of having been in His presence, now we go into the rest of the world. Acts 1.8, with the power that will come on you when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be witnesses as a result. And friends, when they were filled with the Spirit in Acts chapter 2, that cowering bunch of misfit, scaredy cats, man, they, they changed, didn't they? That's what, that's what he said would happen. He said, you're going to be filled with power when the Holy Ghost comes on you. You will. You will be witnesses. And when the Holy Spirit fell in Acts chapter 2, Peter, the one who had denied him, Peter, the one who three times said, I never heard of the guy, Peter, the one who went running to hide, 
Peter, the one who Jesus looked at and said, listen, buddy, (laughs) Satan has asked you that he can sift you like wheat. When you return, strengthen the brethren. How's that for someone who encourages us by knowing you're going to make it? Peter, the one who had denied him at every turn, he's the one who stood up on the day of Pentecost and preached with boldness. And every one of them, all of those scared ones, their fear was gone because the Holy Spirit gave them power. You know what? There's seven times in the book of Acts when it talks about the Holy Spirit coming on someone. And within four verses, all seven times within four verses, they're all doing the same thing. They're all speaking. They're all saying something. Now, three of those seven, uh, go back to the previous slide, Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 19, in three of them, they're speaking in tongues that are previously unknown to them. The other four, 4, 8, 4, 31, 9, and 13, the other four, they're speaking the word of God boldly, they're preaching the message, they're standing up to testify that Jesus is Lord and there's salvation in no one other than Him. Four out of the seven times, in all seven, they're, they're saying something. Four of them, they're witnessing. Now, you can take that information and you can say, well, I'm going to decide from that that to prove you got the Holy Ghost, you got to speak in tongues. Well... If you want to conclude that, knock yourself out. I don't feel that's fair to the passage. I don't feel it's fair to what Jesus tells them in Acts chapter 1. If you're going to conclude that, that's okay. But here's your weird and wild one. How about looking at those other four? How about looking at the majority of them? When they needed power to witness. When they needed power to speak boldly. When they needed the ability to say, you know what? I'm scared right now, but I got somebody inside of me and I'm going to rest in their power. There are four responses you can have to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. In, Ephesians, in, in Acts 7.51, you can resist the Holy Spirit. Nope, don't want to hear it. I want to talk to you about this. Nope, we're not talking about that right now. Second one is in Ephesians 4.30, you can grieve the Holy Spirit. You know what He's calling you to do and you just say no. Man, that, that, that damages any relationship. Third one is in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, quench the Holy Spirit, where you create an environment that makes it difficult for Him to be able to speak to you. Friends, you're not going to get instruction on how to teach your Sunday school lesson on Sunday morning if on Saturday night you're waiting to hear from Him down at Southern Exposure. If you're creating an environment where He's not able to speak, you're quenching the Spirit. But there's a fourth attitude that we can have, and that's in Ephesians 5.18 when He said, be filled with the Spirit. Which one are you living in? Which one are you choosing to walk in? You know what? Paul had learned his lesson. He came to the Corinthians. He came to Corinth and he said, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he said, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear Was Paul fearful and in much trembling? And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. But here's what he had. But in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? Verse 5. That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Friends, if you can talk them into it, somebody else can talk them out of it. And what we need is not the ability to reason them into it, though we have a reasonable faith. Our faith is a reasonable faith. But friends, that that is not the foundation of my salvation. The foundation of my relationship with Jesus is not what you said about Him and convinced me of. The foundation of my relationship with Him is I have experienced Him. 
I have experienced him. Somebody told me recently, I was talking with an atheist recently. I said, so why did you conclude that? And he said, well, I don't want to tell you. I don't want to ruin your faith. Oh, <laughs> you didn't give it to me, baby, and you can't take it away. <laughs> Knock yourself out. You know, give it your best shot. Friends, I've experienced him. I have had my wrestling match with him. And Paul said, I came to you, Corinthians, not with excellency of speech, but with the demonstration of the power of the Spirit of God. And you want to know why? Because he had just come from Athens in Acts chapter 17, where he stood on the Areopagus and he reasoned with them. He argued with them in the classical definition of the word. He reasoned with them the, 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 the logical foundation of the gospel. And Athens is one of the few places that Paul went where he left no church. He reasoned with them. But when he went to Corinth, the next city on his stop, he said, I've already tried that once. (laughs) It didn't work too well. So I'm going to come to you and I'm just going to say, Holy Spirit, just minister through me. Do whatever's necessary. Say Say whatever you want to say. God, please, use me. And you know what's interesting to me as a pastor, as a minister, preacher doing this a long time how many people come up to me and say you know when you said such and such that really ministered to me and I have absolutely no recollection of it (laughs) don't know what you're talking about don't remember having said it I'm glad that you were blessed Uh, I'm thankful that God used me to do it but I have absolutely no recollection of that and you've had people say that to you too haven't you you want to know why because the Holy Spirit was ministering through you and you didn't even know it and you didn't even know it Would you be willing to say, God, please, use me today. God, fill me with your spirit. I want to have a right attitude. Fill me with your spirit. How many people do you know that are lost? How many of the people that you deal with at a restaurant, they're going to hell? We have towns in this state, the whole town's holding hands together, going to hell all at once. They don't know Jesus. How many people in this state need Jesus? And friends, we're the ones who've been sent to tell them. But how many of us, how many of us are afraid to witness? Would that be you? How many of us are afraid to witness? Have you ever been afraid to witness? Come on, don't leave me hanging here. I'm not the only one here. Paul was afraid. He said, pray for me that I'll be given boldness to speak the words that I need to speak. How many times has the Holy Spirit ever tapped you on the shoulder and said, Hey, did you hear that? That's your door. Jump, jump, jump. And we look at him and go, You know, I need to pray about that first. I need to get Tommy Kelly in here. <laughs> Let him talk to that person. Friends, every one of us has done that. And when the opportunity to speak on his behalf is presented to us, that is the time to pray really fast. Dear God, please, fill me with your spirit right now. I don't want to resist you. I don't want to grieve you. I don't want to quench you. God, please fill me with your spirit. Say through me things that I don't even have to know what I'm saying. But God, please speak. Please use me. Take control of my mind so that I think your thoughts. Take control of my will so that I desire your desires. Take control of my emotions so that I feel what you feel. God, fill me with your spirit. And when I'm brought in front of, just like Jesus said we would be over in Luke chapter 12, when I'm brought in front of synagogues and rulers and authorities and bosses and family and friends and strangers and co-workers and those people on the mission field and those people that aren't on the mission field, when I'm brought in front of all of them, don't be anxious. 
about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Well, I don't want to witness somebody tomorrow because I don't know what I'll say to them. You don't need to worry about it today. He said, I'll give it to you in that hour. Now, you be prayed up today. You be prayed up tomorrow morning. But you get into the situation, he's going to give you the words to say. That's just how it works. That is our act of faith. That he will give me the words to say when I get there. God, I want to place myself where I really have to depend on your spirit. Paul uses the word power in all of his epistles except Philemon. Because he knew this this is the key to the whole thing. That you've spent time with God. That you are walking, resting, trusting, believing in the filling of the Spirit. In Acts chapter 4 it says, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Friends, there's your qualification. Oh, I'm not good enough. I can't do it. There's your qualification if you spend time with Jesus. He looks at us and says, come on. I've forgiven your sins. I've already paid the price. Have you accepted that? Or are you still trying to work yourself enough to prove that you deserve it? Are you still expecting, demanding other people prove they deserve God's love, they deserve your love? Friends, grace says it's a gift. I don't understand it, but I'm cranking that car and I'm driving today. Amen? How many of you have ever been afraid to witness? Would you like to ask God, please fill me with your spirit? Let's pray right now. God, for every one of us who have raised our hands and many that didn't. God, we just want to confess we've let you down. We've been afraid. We've been, as Pastor Kevin said last week, going into that furniture store, more worried about the furniture than the most important thing in that store, which is the person that you send up to us. God, please do change our focus. People matter. Money doesn't matter. Jobs don't matter. They won't matter in a thousand years. God, put our focus, our attention on what will matter, still matter in a thousand years, people. And Father, I want to ask you, please, fill us with your spirit. We don't have to have some tingling down the spine or some moving experience. We just act in faith. That just like we pray by faith to a God we cannot see, just like we receive the Bible as your word, without any other justification just like we're water baptized by faith just like we pray to receive Jesus by faith we just ask you God fill me with your spirit so that Christ Ephesians 3.17 may dwell in our hearts by faith God fill us with your spirit use us today help us to be a blessing to someone God whether we're aware of it or not because of the spirit that you've given us that is not a spirit of fear but it's power it's love It's a sound mind. God be glorified.